Good morning. We are uh, in the middle of a series. If you've been with us, you know we're uh, calling it Faith in Hard Times, and that's what we've been talking about, and it's a study as we walk through the book of Habakkuk. And what we've been talking about is faith in hard times. You look around our world today and you see what's happening, whether it's the economy or revolutions all over the world or natural disasters or whatever it may be. And there's a lot of crazy things happening and a lot of questions arise out of those. But even as we talk about it in this series, I want us to even think bigger than that, because it's not just global problems and things we see the big scene, but it's our own lives, what you're dealing with day to day. The little things in your, or the big things, the things that come into your life and that you're dealing with. And the reality is there's, there's a lot of times that there are hard times. And just about at some point in your life, we hit some things that are harder than others. And we maybe uh, struggle a little bit or ask questions or things come to the surface in those times. And that's what we're looking at in Habakkuk. Because really that, that's what happens in the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is seeing all kinds of craziness swirling around in his world and with his own people in his own time. And he asks God some questions. He starts to ask questions back to God. And that's what we really see in the book of Habakkuk. We get this... Uh, We've been saying each week, really in the first and second chapter, we get a conversation between God and Habakkuk. Habakkuk is, uh, he's bewildered. He's not sure what's going on. But what he does is he turns to God and he starts to ask him these questions and he goes directly to him. And really what we're seeing is it's very different than a lot of the prophets. You know, Habakkuk was a minor prophet. He wrote 2,600 years ago. But here what he says in this conversation with God, it's different than the other prophets in this, in that it is a conversation between the two. A lot of times you read the prophets and God says to the prophet, go tell the people this. And the prophet goes and says, thus saith the Lord, and then he says it. And that's kind of the way a lot of the prophets are. But with Habakkuk, it's a little different because he goes directly to God and he asks these questions and God answers him back. And they're going back and forth and there's this this interchange. And really what you're seeing is Habakkuk struggling with God in prayer about what's happening in the world. And we've seen that each week. If you've been with us, the very first week we saw Habakkuk saying, what in the world is going on? What is happening? And he's talking about what's happening in Judah, his own country. He's in this tiny little country that are supposed to be that are God's chosen people. And they've dwindled to just a very few amount of people surrounded by all these evil forces in the world. They've got... Uh, just all around them, all these different things. And what you see is him saying, what is going on? He says, our own, your people, we're a mess. We've turned from you and we've gone to idols and we've gone to other things and we're a mess, but all around us is a mess. And God answers him. And we saw this at the very first week. He answers him and he says, I know, but I'm in control. And then he says, since you ask, I'm going to tell you I'm working in this way. And he says, what he says shocks Habakkuk because he says, I'm going to take the Chaldeans also known as the Babylonians, the worst of the worst, and they're going to come and they're going to wipe you guys out. And that's how I'm going to bring you, my people that have turned to idols, back to me. And Habakkuk says, how can that be? He says, no, God, you cannot do that. You're greater than that. You're better than that. How can you do that? And he pleads back to God, and that's the end of the first chapter. He says, I don't understand. I don't understand what's going on. I don't understand how you can work in that way. But we saw he ends in verse 1 of chapter 2, but I will wait on you. I don't understand, but I will wait. And then in chapter 2, where we are today, and we started in last week, God answers back to Habakkuk. We get God's answer on what's happening in his time and how he's working and what's all that's going on. And I say all this, it's easy to mentally check out when I say, 
we're going to study Habakkuk. We're going back to Old Testament prophet and we start to look at when he wrote and all these things. But please stay with me because the reality is what Habakkuk says is so relevant for us today. It's so relevant for you when you're struggling and there's hard things in your life because God's answers, God's word is eternal and his answer is eternal. And they apply to us just today, just like they did to Habakkuk then. So this morning, what we saw or what we saw last week is at the beginning of chapter two, God says, sometimes you have to wait a little bit. You've got to wait on me. And we talked about what that means to wait in the Lord. But we're going to look at the rest of what God says in chapter two today because he answers a lot of Habakkuk's questions. And he gives us really rich, meaningful, helpful things to hear when we're struggling. So what we're going to look at today, we're going to look at verses 2 through 20. I know last week we went 1 through 4, but we're going to look at God, everything God says to Habakkuk and put it all together. Um, We're going to hit on most of those verses we haven't looked at, but we're going to connect back a little bit to last week. So if you would, look with me at Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 2 through 20. If you're unsure where Habakkuk is, it's okay to look in your, your, uh, concord, in the front, in the table of contents. Or I always say it's easy to go to Matthew and then go back five books. There's 39 books in the Old Testament, Habakkuk's number 35. So just that helps you a little bit if you can find it. But verses 2 through 20, that's what we're going to read. And it says, And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. It seems slow. Wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, his like death, he, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects at his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that the people labor labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will remain, will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beast that terrified them for the blood of man and the violence to the earth, to cities and all that dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. 
Woe to him who says to the wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the earth keep silence before him. Let's pray, and then we're going to look at those verses. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We do thank you for what it teaches us. We do thank you that uh, your word to a prophet writing 2,600 years ago is just as relevant and true today as it was the day it was written. We thank you for preserving it for us. We pray this morning that as we look at it, that we would let it uh, convict us where we need convicting, that you would speak into our lives, that you would help us to see more clearly our need for you and how you're acting and how you're over all and that we can trust you. We thank you, thank you for all you've done for us and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, we're going to ask three questions. We usually do that, look at three questions. And kind of what I'm really asking this morning is, is the questions that Habakkuk's been asking. Because God gives us some real good answers right to what Habakkuk is saying. So the three questions we're going to ask is, why is all this happening? And remember, we're talking about Habakkuk's time and what he sees. But I want you in the back of your mind to be thinking about our day today when we ask that. Why is all this happening? The second question is, how can God allow it to go on? Because that's really what Habakkuk's getting at. And then third, how does it all end? How does it all end? So let's start with the first one. Why is all this happening? And God allows, and he says certain things directly to Habakkuk. And the first thing he's really telling us is that God allows us to have real choices that have real consequences. And he gives us choices in our lives. And if you look at verses 18 through 20, when we look at what God says in 18 through 20, what we get is we are all divided into two categories pretty clearly. If we really simplify it down, it's one or the other, and that's what God is saying here. So look at verses 18 through 20. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. So verse 18, God says right there that you have a choice. You either put your trust in the things you make, that is things of creation, or me. He divides everything right down the middle with that. Really, you see that in verse 4 that we looked up at last week. If you look at verse 4 with me, it says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. His soul that is puffed up, God is talking about the Chaldeans. Because that's what's behind Habakkuk's question. How can you use these awful, terrible people to inflict judgment on us? How can you do that? And so God starts to pronounce his woe and he starts to talk about who the Chaldeans and what they've done and why all this is going on in the world. But it's the same for us today. Everything God says here is this. He's saying you have real choices and you choose between putting your faith and your hope and everything and your being in things of this world or in me. And there's nothing else. Really, we're putting our faith in one or the other. And that's what he tells us. That's what he says in verse 18 when he says, you've, you've carved images and you've made things and you bow down and you worship those things instead of me. That's what we see in Romans 1 when God says, when Paul writing through the Holy Spirit says that uh, we, they've worshipped the creation rather than the creator. And that's what God's saying here. That's what's happening. When Habakkuk asks the question, or when we're asking, why is all this happening? The the answer comes back to God is because you've chosen all these things instead of me. And that's what he says all the way through this chapter. He works through and he says it over and over. He says, you're trusting all these things instead of me. You even see it a little bit with Habakkuk himself. 
Because remember, he's asking the questions and he's saying, I don't understand what's going on. In my mind, I cannot fathom how you can work in this way and you can allow this to happen. And what Habakkuk is admitting to God is he's saying, in my mind, in my thinking, I think it should go one way and I'm not sure. He's flirting with that line of deciding, taking the choice that I'm going to trust my own intellect versus trusting God. You see that just in the context here. And so God gives this answer back. And really what he's saying is as old as you can go back to when God relates to man and when he's created us. Go all the way back to Exodus. Exodus 20 is when God gives the Ten Commandments. And if you know the Ten Commandments and you know Exodus 20, what's the very first one? You'll have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. So from the very beginning, when God gives his moral law to his people, the very first thing he says is you put nothing else in my place. And he says, you have no other gods before me. And then the very next one, what's the second commandment? The second commandment is really telling us, giving us a fuller picture of what that means. Because what he says in the second commandment in Exodus 20, verses 4 and 5, he says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or is that in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. What God says in the first, the very first two commandments is you put nothing else in my place. And what he says by the second commandment, you don't make an image. You don't make a carved image. What he's saying is you do not take anything in my creation, anything that I as God sovereign over all has made and worship that. Nothing. You only worship me. And what God does right there with the Ten Commandments at the very beginning is he divides everything. Either you trust me or you trust in the made things that are beneath me. And it's one or the other. And that's exactly what he's saying here in verses 18 through 20 and even in verse 4. Behold, the Chaldeans are arrogant and puffed up because they don't trust me. They put their might in themselves. And so he makes it real clear. And it really even goes back further than that. And start with the Ten Commandments, but you can even go back further. Go back to Genesis 2. God creates Adam and Eve and he puts them in the garden. And he tells them there's one rule here. Right? He tells them not to eat from the one tree. But I want you to even think base level, even below that. What is God saying? What he says to them is, I'm going to tell you one thing I want you to do. And what God is saying is, I want you to trust me. That's really what he says to Adam and Eve. I'm telling you, this is how you're to live. This is what you do. Just don't go here. Just don't do that. And I want you to trust me. And you know the story. They don't trust him. And they do it and they go. And but what you see is all the way back, all the way through from the beginning of time when God has created man. His one rule, his one thing was you trust me. You trust what I tell you and, you, and that's it. That's essentially what it comes down to. And that's what he's saying in this passage when he says, when we're asking the question, what is going on in the world? All that's a mess. God's answer, part of, part of it right here to Habakkuk is the problem is you've put other things in my rightful place. I give you choices. I allow you to make real choices with real consequences. And what you've done is you've taken the choice and you've put me off to the side and you've put things in my place. And what he does in the rest of this chapter, a lot of this chapter really goes through and he tells us so much. He gives us why uh, so much evil in the world and the root of so much is right here in God's answer with the way he says the things we trust in front of him. You know, eight verse verse 18, when he says, who let the dogs out? (laughs) You you can't just not not say that. There's just no way like. 
Yes, the ringtone right in the middle. Who let the dogs out? That's great. Surely let the dogs out. That's it. That, that's okay. We've thoroughly embarrassed her so much that she'll never leave it on again. So that's all right. That's all right. They always say that like cell phones is the one thing that's really hard to get people back. And I was going to go right through it. And then I was like, eh, just, we'll regroup and we'll go again. That's okay. Back to what, this, this chapter, verse 18, where he's saying, he, he gets to the end. Thank you for turning it off. All right. Uh, verse 18, he gets to the idolatry. Right? He says, that's what God says at the end. You either put your trust in the things you've made, but when you go back up to verse 5, so he says that at the beginning, you either trust in me or you're arrogant and you trust in yourself, but then he starts to give us all these things that we trust in. And really what he tells us is he goes through all the things that we make idols. And it's right at the beginning of uh, verse 5. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. And the first thing he hits on with the cow... He says they put their faith in wine. They've put their faith in uh, libations, substances. They've found ways to make themselves feel better. And look what God says about it. He says wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. I want you to think about what he's saying. He says when you take something, uh, and really when we talk about idolatry, I want you to think of it this way. We take an incomplete joy a thing that may be good or something we like, and we try to build, we put it in a place it should never be. And that's exactly what you see here. Because God says, when you take wine and you make it a major thing or substance abuse or whatever, and you put it central in your life, it is a traitor. It will betray you. I want you to think about it. Because when you, when you take those things and you start to say, well, it'll make me feel better, or it'll loosen me up, or it'll make me relax, or whatever, and you start to make that your central thing, and it grows in focus, and it becomes, I have to have this drink, and I have to do this, or I have to do that. What happens is it betrays you because it cannot withstand the place that you're putting it in. It's an incomplete joy that you're trying to build more of your life around. And that's what God says. It will betray you. It's an arrogant where is it? It's an arrogant man who is never at rest. So you know, even think about that, that when you start to put that as your center and then you start to chase after, for example, uh, drugs or alcohol, and then it's a never ending cycle, you'll never catch up to it. And it will always betray you and it will never give you the full joy that you're after. And that's what God's saying. When you take things and you put them in my place, that's what's going to happen. He even says it in the second half of verse five. He says his greed is as wide as Sheol like death. He never has enough. If you make money your idol, you make money the thing you're chasing after. Greed creeps in and you make it all about, if I just have this and I just have this, it'll never be enough. And that's exactly what God says. When you start to chase that, it will never be enough. And you'll go round and round, just like what he says at the beginning of verse 5, it will betray you. And you'll go on and on and it'll never get there. You see that and you see it all the way through. And a lot of times we, we talk about idolatry and that's really what we're saying. These are things that become idols in our lives when we make incomplete joys the main thing. That's what we're saying. But a lot of times in our culture people say, well, that's not really an idol. Come on, Bible's talking about little things you bow down to and carved images and all different stuff. And, and part of that, we, we like to just kind of push it aside for that. I was rereading a book this week uh, that Tim Keller wrote called Counterfeit Gods. I, I read it about a year ago, and it's all about idolatry. And he made the point so well, and it, what he says is that, yeah, we don't, have, uh, we don't have the temples like they had in ancient times. We don't have the temple of Aphrodite or 
or whatever, the Greek goddesses and all those things. But he said, if you think for a second we don't have the same idols in our culture, you're crazy. And he uses Aphrodite as the example. Aphrodite was the Greek goddess of beauty and love and sensuality and all that. And he says, yeah, we don't have a temple to her anymore. We don't have her statue that we're bowing down to. But what we do have is, is uh, countless diet programs and fads and uh, body-enhancing undergarments that you wear to make you more beautiful and all these things and body image and all the things that our culture puts forth as the thing. And we are just as much. It's, it looks a little different now. It's maybe a little more sophisticated in the way we do it now, but it's, it's very much still there. We still have the idols who are just in different wrapping. We see it in verse 9. If you look at verse 9, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. Look at what God's saying there. You put uh, your faith in your security in what you have, the house you live in. If you just get enough money that you can buy a house in this neighborhood or in this place, or I can buy a whole bunch of land so I can withdraw with everybody, then I'll be safe. That's become an idol. That's what he's saying right there in verse 9. That's become an idol in your life. You're, you're basing your security on where you live and, and who you're surrounded with. And the reality is God's saying, I'm in control. That's what he's saying all the way through this. You're taking what only I can give you, and you're trying to find it in other places. I will make my security be in where I live and how I provide and all those things. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with wanting security for your family or wanting to provide for them or any of those things. It's not not wrong, but the problem is when that becomes sinner. When you start to say, if we have this, everything will be okay. If we just live here, we won't have to worry and we'll have no more problems. Because what you've done is you've replaced the person that can give you that, which is God alone, and you've moved him over and you've put something else in his place. And, it, and eventually you're going to run into something that's going to give you problems. Think, just think for that example. If I just have this house and in this certain place, and then you live in Bastrop, Texas last week, and fires sweep through and they wipe out your house, and you go, I thought I had it all. You know, I thought everything was good now that I live here. It's not. Those things can't give it to you. You see it in verse 9. You see it in verse 12. He takes it to the next step. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. What he's saying is woe to the one who gets their wealth and their things by unethical practices. Where money becomes so important or having certain things become so important, you start to cut corners. I'll cheat on my taxes. Nobody will know. And then I'll get more money in my pocket and it'll make... When you start to do those things, you see what's happened. You've taken and you've sold out your ethics in order to have more. And that's what God says. It's going to catch up to you. Verse 12. Then verse 15, he says, Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. And there's a lot behind this. Commentators think he's talking about uh, the leaders in, in Babylon and the awful things they did in their courts. And we'll just leave it at this. Sexual perversion is what it's talking about in great length. And as I read this, I thought about the things you make your neighbors drink in order to gaze at their nakedness. The sad truth is you don't have to make your neighbors drink to gaze at nakedness today. You have to have access to a computer. And that's it. That's all it takes. 
And I started to think about this and what it means and as we look and think about the idols and what it and I was going to make the point, I thought, uh, I was going to say that pornography is a billion-dollar industry. And I went to look it up to make sure I wasn't misspeaking on that fact. And what I found is it's not a billion-dollar industry. It's a $13 billion industry in America alone. Alone. 12% of all websites today are pornography. 12% of everything. Less than 1 in, 10, one in 9 point whatever. And I read that and just thought, 13 billion in America, over 100 billion worldwide. Talk about an idol, a thing that we have taken, an, an incomplete joy, a joy that God gave us for within marriage, a wonderful gift. He's taken it and we've so twisted and distorted it and made it into something it was never supposed to be. And what happens is when you chase it in that way, it will let you down. Happens over and over. But what you see all the way through this is why, why is all this going on? And a big part of the answer, God is saying, why is it going in? It's going on because you've taken and you've replaced me with all these things. You've moved me from the center and you've put all these things in this place. And that's really the answer. He gives us real choices with real consequences and we do and we choose all these things over them. But that doesn't answer the question, why does God allow it to happen? Because that's really what Habakkuk's after. That's really what's behind a lot of times when we see perversion and idolatry and all these things around us. And we say, why? Just stop it. Just end it all. And what God answers to that is in verse 3 and then in verse 14. We looked at verse 3 last week and it says, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, Wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Part of the why he allows it to happen is he says, my timing is perfect and I can use all these things. I allow you to make real choices with real consequences. But then he says, verse 14, verse 14 says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What God says is, I allow you to make these choices and they have real consequences, but they are not ultimately going to frustrate how I'm working. You see that? I'm bigger than the Chaldeans. They're awful, and I've allowed them to make their choices, and they've made their choices, and they've rejected me, and they've done all these terrible things. And yes, they're terrible, but I'm going to allow them to uh, persevere for a time, and then I'm going to wipe them out. And then I'm going I'm to use your choices, but your choices will not ultimately frustrate what I'm doing. You see what God's saying? You may not get how this is all going, but what I'm doing is I'm taking your real choices with real consequences, and I'm still over all of it. In the end of the story, what he's saying is, and that gets us really to the last part, part is look, we'll look at verse 14, because he says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How do the waters cover the sea? Where there's water is there's, there's sea. <laughs> what God is saying is, my glory will cover all. All. Every bit of it. Every single bit of it. And that's where we get to the last question. How does all this end? It all ends with God's glory covering the waters. His glory is over all. Every bit of it. And that's what he's saying. And he's telling us that I work in ways that you can't see. And I allow you to have your real choices with real consequences. But they will not frustrate what I'm doing. I'm still in control. And I'm still going to bring this to the end that I have ordained to happen. 
But I want us to see there is a part because Habakkuk's asking, what about the Chaldeans? They're so awful. What about them? What about when we, we reject God with idols? What happens there? And God gives the answer in verse 16. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame upon your glory. I want you to understand what he's saying here. The cup shows up several times in Scripture. The cup of the Lord, it's a lot in the prophets. And it shows up, and what it is is God's wrath. God's wrath being poured out on all unrighteousness, all injustice, all idolatry, all the things that we take and put in his place. What God says is that at some time, I'm going to pour out my wrath and I'm going to take it all away. Every bit of it. And that's why it says, my glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, because I'm going to remove all injustice. Every bad thing there is will be wiped out and it will be gone. And that's what he's saying. How this is going to end, you don't understand how I'm working and what these cycles are like, but the end of it all is it's going to be perfect and I'm going to pour out my wrath. And the reason he says this, and wrath is very hard for us to hear. When we start to talk about Christianity and God and we say the God of wrath and people go, ooh, I don't want to hear that. Forget the God's love. He's not wrath. Well, God is perfect justice and he is perfect holiness. And if he's perfect justice and perfect holiness, then that means all things that reject him and put him aside have to be removed or he will not be perfect justice. And that's what he gets to at the end in verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the earth keep silence before him. What he says is, I'm on my throne. I'm in control and I'm going to wipe out all of this. And when you read that, when you read that God is on his throne and everyone will be quiet before me and my cup, the cup of my wrath will come around, that is chilling. And it can be very scary if you remove it and you pull just that out and you don't get the fullness of Scripture. Because the reality is if we're honest with ourselves, each and every one of us has idols in our lives. And if God says, my cup, the cup of my wrath will come around and remove all those, that, that points at all of us. And that's very chilling to think about. None bigger idols, really, to be honest, than our religion a lot of times. We so easily slip into making religion our idol. If I just go to church, if I just do some volunteer work, if I just do these things, then I'll be okay. God will forgive me of the, of the idols that I do have, the things I do keep back from them. But the reality is what he's saying here is I will come and I'm going to remove all of it because my glory is going to be over the face of the earth. And if we just ended there, that would be really, really scary. be really hard to hear. But the reality is that's not the last time the cup shows up in Scripture because it shows up and it's, it's there again on the night just a few hours before Jesus goes to the cross. And if you know the story, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's on his face before the Lord and he says, if there is any way that this cup can pass from me, God, this would be the time. And he says, but not my will, yours be done. And Jesus gets up and Judas becomes to, comes to betray him with the soldiers. And Peter pulls out his sword and says, no, 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 this isn't happening. And Jesus turns to Peter and he says, Peter, he says, am I not to drink the cup that my father has given me? You see what Jesus is saying? Yes, the cup will come for all unrighteousness, all injustice, 
all our sin and all our idolatry. But Jesus says, I will go and take it for you. I will drink the cup on your behalf so you don't have to. If we didn't have the cross, if we just had the front side and we didn't see the whole end, it's, it's scary because no one can stand up. God will do away with all sin and all unrighteousness and all things, yet he loves us so much that he was willing to send Jesus so that he could pour it out on his behalf. And then all he says is, that's why it says in verse 4, the righteous shall live by faith. The way you become righteous, the way that you, you get to the other side is by saying, Jesus took it for me. I know I can't do it. I know I have idols. I know I've made mistakes. But Jesus took God's wrath on my behalf and I am clinging to that. That's why it says you have the choice. You either trust God and what he's done for you or you trust yourself. There's no other. That's it. There's no in-between. You either trust the way that God has provided, which is Jesus Christ who came to take God's wrath on our behalf, or you don't. And that's it. And if you do, verse 14 is the most beautiful verse. It's one of the most wonderful things because when he says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, when you put your faith in Christ, you will be there to see it. Because he's going to remove all And he's going to let you step right into his beauty and majesty. And that's all they'll be. So when we think about why does he allow it to happen, he allows it to happen. And he allows it to go on for a time so that he can come take it for us. So he can just step you right into his glory. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you have perfect justice, that you are perfect holiness, that you will not let anything go unpunished. We thank you that all evil, all unrighteousness will be removed and that we can trust in that. But we thank you most of all that we, that you've provided a way that we don't have to pay for it. That you lovingly allowed your son to come and take our place. We can't thank you enough. We thank you, thank you. For the gift of our salvation in Christ, we pray it in his precious name. Amen.